0: The word dramaturgy is unusual enough that my phone's autocorrect function changes it to dramaturgy. Even for theater makers, the concept is nebulous enough to prompt articles about it in major newspapers with headlines like, What the Bleep is a dramaturg?" In my dramaturgy classroom, I aim to demystify dramaturgy as an art form by recognizing that, as scholars and theater makers, we all already commit acts of dramaturgy regularly and enthusiastically. In my books, dramaturgy is an act of creation, and more of a mindset than a set of rules, regulations, and duties. I'm Professor Molly Seremet, and it's such a thrill to welcome you back for Season 2 of *Writ in the Margins, a podcast that harnesses dramaturgical thinking as a performative act of creation. This podcast was conceptualized, researched, written, produced, and realized by the graduate students in the Shakespearean Performance Program at Mary Baldwin University. For season two, we are bringing you 13 episodes that unpack, investigate, reimagine, and sometimes even push against five wildly different plays El Muerto Disimulado or Presumed Dead by Angela de Azevedo, The Antipodes by Richard Broom, The Island Princess by John Fletcher, Loa to the Divine Narcissus by Sorwana Juana Ines de la Cruz and Life is a Dream by Pedro Calderon de la Barca. These plays sit alongside Shakespeare in the universe of early modern drama, but each has its own unique terrain and orbit. And each episode offers a close look at key features of the landscape from a dramaturgical perspective. In their research, students have deployed tools of structural analysis, contextual synthesis, and creative intervention, and have intermingled their research with performed scenes, original music, and special features galore. Feel free to listen to the episodes in this season in any order. I hope you'll also go back and revisit season one as well. Do visit our website for show notes, transcripts, and bibliographic materials. We appreciate the support of Mary Baldwin University's Shakespeare and Performance program in this endeavor. Now that's enough for me. On to your episode of Writ in the Margins.
1: Please be advised, listener discretion recommended. This podcast will discuss themes of abuse, mental illness, and disability theory.
2: This podcast is presented by the Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare and Performance Programs podcast series, Writ in the Margins.
1: Hello, y'all. I'm Dylan Mabe, he, his, joined today by my classmates, George Durfee, he, his, and
3: Rachel Lewis, she, her.
1: Hello, George. Hey Dylan. Hey Rachel.
3: Hi Dylan. Nice to be here.
1: And stay tuned for a special guest interview with Tim Briggs later on, they them. Just for a bit of context, the Mary Baldwin University Shakespeare (laughs) (laughs) Shakespeare Performance Program is a graduate program based in beautiful Stanton, Virginia in conjunction with the nationally renowned American Shakespeare Center. Our program is a collaborative program that incorporates original practices and approaches to early modern theater, with a focus on Shakespeare, of course. This program incorporates graduate-level history, theater, and literary classes in an attempt to produce graduates who are well-versed in early modern staging and scholarship. Rachel George and I are currently in our second year of our Master of Letters program, and Tim Briggs is a recent graduate and working actor, so we're delighted to have them with us today.
3: Our episode today focuses on the Witch of Edmonton's titular witch Elizabeth Sawyer through a disability theory lens. We'll be walking you through some contemporary production history of the portrayal of Sawyer, dissect this production history using disability studies, and interview our friend and alumni of the program, uh, alumni of the program Tim Briggs, a modern day disabled multi hyphenate theater maker, to ask them about their experience with disability theory in the arts.
1: Despite enjoying popularity during the American Civil War. The modern production history of The Witch of Edmonton starts in 1921 with the Montague Summer Phoenix Society production, which marked the 300th year anniversary of the execution of Elizabeth Sawyer, the titular witch. Prior to the staging, American productions of The Witch of Edmonton were heavily adapted or, or annotated. But this revival seemed to have originated from resurgence of interest in Jacobean drama and the supernatural, and therefore more closely followed the original text. A review of Sybil Thorndyke's 1921 portrayal of Sawyer described her as
2: A deformed old hag. Hook-nosed, toothless, ghastly. Wisps of gray hair straggled over her shoulders. Bent nearly doubled with one leg trailing after the other. She came on in a ragged brown cloak, leaning on a staff and carrying a bundle of sticks. She croaked like a raven and hissed like a snake. <clears throat>
1: The advertising
2: for this 1921 staging read, Many such a persecuted hag perished miserably at the stake under James I, who we don't stand, hounded to an almost inevitable doom.
1: Disability theory asks us to investigate why this doom is inevitable for the only disabled character in the play. Many past productions don't center disability, but rather age in the casting of Sawyer. Dame Eileen Atkins, who played Sawyer in 2014, <laughs> says in an interview with Susanna Clapp of The Guardian.
3: Even today there is a resentment of what you call mature and I call old people, they are thought of as witches. The only reason Sawyer is called a witch is because she's ill-favored with age.
1: Atkins continues.
3: You have to look so terrible, you get depressed straight away, but there's also a relish in playing someone so utterly hideous.
1: However, while age may play a role in how society perceives Sawyer, her age is not the cause of her disability. Sawyer says in Act 2, Scene 1,
3: Strike, dude, and withered may that hand and arm whose blows have lamed me drop from the rotten trunk.
1: Her disability is a direct result of abuse, yet that abuse is never centered. Even in the production history, accounts of Sawyer, such as this quote about the 2010 Dunn & Weitzel productions,
2: Sawyer was bearing one heavily bruised eye and one bandaged eye, creating the impression of advanced age through her voice and movements.
1: This quote perfectly demonstrates the habit of glossing over disability in favor of centering age and even compl- conflating the two conditions with each other. Most often, productions of The Witch of Edmonton cast an actress above the age of 40 as Sawyer, so occasionally younger actresses such as Leonie Hill and Chrissy Forte have played the role.
3: By the way, we do recognize the importance of roles for older women, but we are more interested in the centering of the disabled experience.
2: Excellent point, Rachel. For
1: instance, when Leonie Hill played this role...
2: Quote, Mistress Sawyer is a cockney sparrow, more firebrand than fading hag. Leonie Hill plays a young highly sexed witch whose physical deformity amounts to a large strawberry birthmark on her face. This might single her out in a community, but it hardly suggests the dangerous outcast of the original play, end quote.
1: This production, directed, produced, and adapted by Natasha Dawn, deliberately downplays the very real obstacle of Sawyer's chronic disability. Textually, Sawyer's disability impedes both her physical mobility and social standing, While the strawberry birthmark is still a physical mark of othering, it does not carry the same social weight, a mobility-restricting disability might. Sawyer says herself in Act 2, Scene 1,
3: Because I am poor, deformed, and ignorant, and like a bow buckled and bent together by some more strong and mischievous than myself, must I for that be made a common sink?
1: Sawyer refuses sorry refers to her mobility restricting disability as a direct contribution to her societal status
2: it sounds as though her disability is both caused by and causes abuse towards her resulting in a cyclical pattern she's unable to escape
1: you're right george while a strawberry facial mark can be covered a limp cannot while both carry elements of stigma some stigmas can be avoided and some cannot and i'd
3: like to That the government doesn't help Sawyer out either. Rather than giving aid to a woman clearly in need of it, the justice tells Sawyer to...
1: Quote, mend they life. Get home and pray.
3: In Act 4, Scene 1, Line 166.
1: Good point, Rachel. I have to say, the majority of The Witch of Edmonton's production history that we've looked at exhibits a distinct lack of centering the disabled experience. More than that, many productions seem to unconsciously equate disability and or old age with the Christian concept of damnation, wherein the witch literally and willingly associates herself with the antithesis of Christ, the devil.
3: As fellow classmate Macy Foss points out in her thesis, quote, witches did practice magic, but their way of obtaining knowledge involved an important step magicians did not have to take, making a pact with Satan. Magic for witches also involved doing harm on another person, Bewitching them, usurping their position of power, or murdering them in the most extreme accusations. End quote. Sawyer is condemned not necessarily because the townsfolk can prove she took malicious action, but rather because she is known to have malicious intentions towards the townsfolk.
1: This association of disability with immorality occurs at least partially because the productions unconsciously admit the playable social implications of Sawyer's disability that the text indicates and instead focuses on the question of morality within a predetermined Christian structure. The Red Bull Theater's 2011 production, however, does explore the relationship of all the characters w- within the concept of damnation through their unique set design. Directed by Jesse Berger the desi- and designed by Anka Lupez,
3: quote, the stage was arranged as a traverse. with The audience on either side and at its center was a gaping pit of dirt. Bethany Packard summarizes the symbolic impact of the pit. The closer a character became to the literal pit, the closer that character got to damnation. The exception being Sawyer, who spent her entire first scene in the dirt. She was vulnerable to the dog's persuasion whereas Frank took more time to coax off the beaten path." End
1: quote. Because the dirt pit is associated with damnation and because Sawyer, the only disabled character, initially begins to begins the show in the pit, this production, either unconsciously or consciously, associates the only disabled character with Christian damnation. The widespread theatrical habit of centering able-bodied people rather than non-normative bodies often results in a correlation between the non-normative with moral decay. Leonard Davies and the Disability Study Re- Studies Reader reminds us to center our understanding of bodies, stating...
2: Oh. When we think of bodies in a society where the concept of the norm is operative, then people with disabilities will be thought of as deviants. end quote.
3: (laughs) In order to better understand the disabled perspective, specifically that of a disabled theater maker, we've asked our friend Tim Briggs to answer a few interview questions for us. Tim, as an alumni of our graduate program, specializes in early modern drama. They are autistic, which is not necessarily a disability, but does affect how they interact with the world, both on and off stage. They also have fibromyalgia, which causes chronic pain and fatigue. Tim, it's great to have you here. Please introduce yourself and share your pronouns with us.
4: Hey, it's great to be here. I'm Tim Briggs, and my pronouns are they, them. Hello. Hello.
3: Tim, if you were a dramaturg working on a production of The Witch of Edmonton, How would you, as a disabled person, want to handle the portrayal of Sawyer?
4: As an actor and a dramaturg, I consider representation. With a disabled character, is there any reason that a disabled actor could not play this role? I think in most cases, the answer would be that a disabled actor can play this role, and therefore they should. At the same time, when we're talking about something like deformity in the text, I would be really cognizant of how to portray that without it being a terrible stereotype or something like that. I mean, obviously, we've seen lots of productions of, say, Richard the Third, where there are things like added limps and hunchbacks and use of canes or things like that. I wouldn't ever want to put something on stage that's going to cause harm with its representation. So that's my starting point, I think. And how
1: does that inform casting?
4: It starts with specifically calling for disabled actors to audition. Marginalized actors are sometimes uncertain if they're actually welcome to audition for certain roles, so adding that explicitly into casting materials is a good starting place. Obviously, we don't need people to prove their disabilities or anything like that, so it's self-identification. After casting an actor, there's talk about comfort levels and their own take on the character and all of that. I think it's an ongoing conversation, not something that's a total wall between the production team and their actors, if that makes sense.
2: So, Tim, what are your thoughts on the conflation of disabled bodies with the notion of Christian sin?
4: I absolutely dislike it. I'm not Christian to begin with, but for most of my childhood, I had words like sin and hell thrown at me. And it's frustrating to see this sort of conflation as if disabled people could somehow fix themselves as if they needed to if they reached some ever-moving goalpost of moral purity Obviously, we're talking about an early modern play, so societally other things were going on then, and there are reasons for this conflation. That doesn't mean I'm going to give it a pass, because it was always terrible. Disabled people have always existed, long before Christianity, and older cultures were not so terrible about it. In a modern context, though, I think it's important to consider how and why we want to tell stories that still use this conflation.
1: When talking about such an overanalyzed era of literature, how important is it for scholars and theater makers to find examples of the disabled experience in early modern plays?
4: Right. I mean, there's not ever going to be a universal disabled experience, just like there's no universal trans experience or whatever else. But I think it's important to consider representation in any piece we're doing, what it meant in the time it was written, and how that might have changed in the however many hundreds of years since it was written. We don't live in the early modern era after all, so what are we trying to say with these characters now? Who are we talking to? Who are we including in the conversation that we weren't before? With disabled characters, yeah, I think it's totally important to find representation throughout the ages, but I also think it's important to consider what lens we're looking through, because as we see with Sawyer, sometimes the rep that we find isn't exactly flattering.
3: So Tim, what are your thoughts about the portrayal of disabled persons in the genre of early modern theater as a whole?
4: (laughs) Wow, that's a big question, isn't it? I mean, I think we can consider a lot more characters, quote, disabled than you'd normally think, right? Obviously, there's Sawyer here. There's Richard III, as I mentioned earlier. But what about someone like Hamlet? Hamlet is held up on a pedestal by scholars, but consider how disabling mental illness is. I'm not talking out of my lane here either, since I've struggled with mental illness myself. There's more disabled representation if we want there to be, if we look at the textual evidence. And honestly, I'm not a purist either. Hamlet's an easy example for me, but there's no reason that other characters can't be informed by disability outside of textual evidence. What does it mean if Romeo can't physically climb the balcony? How does that change a scene or a relationship? And maybe more importantly, how doesn't it change things? I want disabled people to see themselves in the work that we do on stages. A huge part of that is including them outside the obvious and often problematic representation they have. Should a disabled person play Sawyer? Yeah, I obviously think that. But I caution production teams not to consider disabled people playing explicitly disabled characters to be enough. That's a bare minimum. I want disabled people to be able to watch an iconic show and see themselves in it without necessarily being a villain or told that disability is sinful or any of that.
2: Absolutely. Um, before my next question, Tim, I want to just point out something that I think you've hit the nail on the head with, which is because there's this conflation that exists with equating disability with sin or evilness that we see in the witch of Edmonton um even though it was written during the early mon- early modern period um you you said something earlier where you were like it can the representation can be there if we want it to be there um and so Maybe. I just wanted I don't know like I feel like that's just kind of what this play in this podcast has kind of asked us to examine where it's like you know there's nothing stopping us from employing disabled actors there's nothing you know what I mean I don't know do you have anything more you'd like to add on that
4: um I think it's just like what I meant when I said like don't consider that enough is you know teams might act like okay well we put a disabled actor in the role of the disabled character so we don't have to try harder we don't have to include them in other roles but that's nonsense right in order to see representation like Think about what they did with Oklahoma a couple of years ago, where they had a woman in a wheelchair playing Edo Annie. And that's like a huge, big, important thing. But she couldn't get up to the Tony stage at the end because there weren't stairs. Do you know what I mean? So like it's thinking about including disability at all levels of the production. And just why can't any character be disabled? There's no there's nothing stopping us. Right? There's absolutely nothing stopping us from having disabled Hamlets and disabled Romeos and disabled King Johns and whatever else. Uh, we just have to be brave enough to do it.
2: Heck yeah. I, I second it. Because, again, I feel like every, all the work that we've we've looked at, all the materials we've looked at, you know, talking to you, it's really all just pointed to that. At least for me, Dylan, Rachel, I don't know if, if you guys have anything different you'd like to say.
3: Uh. No, I, I'm just like really agreeing with Tim, and I'm really glad that that's uh, that we like we all agree about that kind of thing. You know, like there should be more effort to be to be made to bring those, um, to 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 center those people's experience and not just the normates sort of experience, right? Yeah. I think that's really great, um, and I'm I'm happy that that's a conversation that's happening. You
4: know, yeah, I hope it keeps happening on like bigger stages and like as we all go out and create theater, it's something that we should all think about too.
3: Absolutely. So Tim, mm-hmm. we're almost at, our, at the end of our time here. And so we wanted to make sure you get your plug in. Um, where where can we find you um, to to follow up with any projects that you've got coming up?
4: Sure. It's probably easiest to follow my Twitter, which is Tim Briggs VO. It's B-R-I-G-G-S. Uh, but anyone interested in my work can also check my website, tjbriggs.com. I have my past projects linked there, which is mostly voice acting. So there's things that you can listen to. Um, and it's all linked there. But yeah, come check me out on Twitter. <laughs>
2: yes, and we'll leave the link
1: to Tim's work and contact info in the description for this episode.
4: Thank you again, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much. Yeah, of thank course. you, Tim. Thanks for having me.
3: Yeah, and you're you're absolutely right, George. I really love Tim's point about casting um, those disabled characters. They should be able you know, they should be able to play our heroes too, not just like the, you know, it's, it's
2: really Absolutely. True.
1: Something Tim brings up, I think is very salient, is this duality between representation of disabled bodies on stage and the delicate nature of putting disabled bodies within roles like Sawyer, who actively pr- participate in evil or negative quote-unquote activities. Mm-hmm. Obviously, disabled actors should be invited to the table of theater making and especially casting. However, a play like The Witch of Edmonton does present issues when placing disabled actors in roles that literally fraternize with the devil. Tim talks about the conflation of Christianity within The Witch of Edmonton, and they bring up a good point about how this quote-unquote moral purity is somehow the default within the story and really within society. But it seems it still presents a delicate matter when it comes to production because of audience, context, structure, all of it.
2: Yeah, it's like if you try to present a non-Christian or a negative view of Christianity in the Deep South, people might look at you funny. <laughs> sadly, sadly, but that is that is the nation that we that we are dealing with, I guess. But in terms of the witch in the law in the witch of Edmonton, uh, Christianity plays a huge role in the stigmatization of Sawyer. You know, we have that term stigmatization of not being a part of the norm that. Uh, is a, within disability studies and in the play instead of doing the seemingly christian thing and offering Sawyer help and assistance she's met with scorn and a false sense of help mm-hmm. and the townspeople are like instead of here let me help you it's oh i'll pray for you which liter- quite literally is not helpful at all <laughs> um and the townspeople's professed piety ends up operating as a component of stigmatization rather than a force for destigmatization. And dramaturgically, the role Christianity plays in The Witch of Edmonton, it's useful in that it highlights where Sawyer society falls short in making her a part of the community. Instead of helping her with her needs and helping her have more access to the help she needs, the community shuns her and calls her a witch.
3: Definitely a lot of modern parallels I can think of, right? Really what these productions are losing in in downplaying Sawyer's disability is an interesting examination of how society treats the disabled body, right? What many of the productions have examined so far is how society treats the elderly or the poor, which is not bad, but nevertheless, by not acknowledging the textual evidence of Sawyer's disability, the production excludes an entire group of people with very real lived experiences. It's really irresponsible for a production to ignore the disability aspect of Sawyer. The representation really matters.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: we thank you all so much for exploring the witch of edmonton with us please make sure to check out the rest of the mary Baldwin university writ and the margins podcast episodes featuring the rest of our cohort discussing three other early modern plays we'd like to give a huge thank you to tim briggs for talking with us today and sharing their experience as a disabled actor focused in early modern productions thank you again for listening and we'll see you again next time
2: bye guys
0: so much for listening to written the margins on behalf of my awesome students i hope you've enjoyed this episode all opinions shared on this podcast belong to episode hosts and their special guests and do not necessarily reflect the positions of our places of work and study please check out our show website for more resources including show notes and transcripts now don't be a dramaturgy listen to another episode